value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Good day, everyone. I'm Ron Ansana. Welcome to the U.S. Lens, and we're going to focus this week on Asian real estate. Now, here at home in the United States, we've been focused on residential real estate for quite some time. Price appreciation has been, uh, in some cases, exponential. And we're also seeing now with tighter Fed policy, mortgage rates topping 5% for the first time since 2011. What does the real estate market, though, look like in the Asia Pacific region? Joining me now to talk about that is Andrew Haskins. He is head of strategy and investor advisory of real estate, Asia Pacific for Schroeder's. Andrew, thanks for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, let's just start, if, if, if we might, with, with the overall uh, in the Asia-Pacific region when it comes to real estate. I mean, we've heard a lot about overbuilding in China. We've heard about the graying of Japan and other parts of Asia, a whole host of factors, obviously, that are still affecting the global economy, whether it's the pandemic or, or the war in Ukraine. Is there um, a way in which one can make a general statement about real estate in, in that region? Asia-Pacific is a large and very diverse region, so it is difficult to generalize uh, about real estate uh, across the region. And of course, you have a significant division between the developed markets of the region and the emerging markets of the region. As investors, we focus more on the developed markets. And I think if you look at the developed markets, you can uh, identify certain long-run trends. And I would highlight in particular continued urbanization, which drives growth of the middle class, which underpins growth in office-based employment. I would highlight the emergence of megacities, in particular the Yangtze River Delta in East China, also the Greater Bay Area in South China, also Greater Tokyo in Japan. I would highlight also leadership in technology. There are four or five particular technology centers across Asia Pacific, centers of innovation, uh, and those cities house clusters of technology tenants in key submarkets or key business parks. And finally, uh, I would highlight what some people call the silver economy. So the consequences of aging populations in developed markets like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, but also mainland China and the emergence of the silver economy has all sorts of implications for real estate. Yeah, let me, let me pick up on the last one and then go backwards. Um, with respect to you know the silvering of any economy, if you will, it, it represents both some risks and, and, and rewards. Obviously, uh, population replacement in many of these countries is becoming uh, harder to come by. What happens to an economy when you see, let's say, death rates, for instance, uh, larger than birth rates? Well, from a real estate perspective, the structural change uh, of aging populations as you say, presents both a challenge and an opportunity. If the workforce starts to shrink, that may ultimately result in lower demand for office space uh, or for retail space. Uh, conversely, the aging of the population creates the need for new alternative asset types, 
Some of these uh, asset types are, are, are very nascent in the region, but one could point in particular to senior housing, assisted living communities, medical offices. Now, all of these uh, have potential for real estate investors looking forward. All right, let me go back to urbanization, which you brought up, and, and the growth in office-based employment. Uh, given the pandemic uh, and what it's done to, and I think this is true worldwide, the, the, the psychology of the average worker who is now saying, what do I want to do? How much do I want to do it for? And where do I want to do it? Do I even want to go into the office at all if I don't have to? Do you think even beyond the United States, where this has been a bit of a challenge of late, we're going to see similar challenges in the Asia-Pacific region, where particularly if you're not tied to a desk in an office, that people are going to say, look, you know, I don't want to go in. And, and, and some companies are going to be hung with, if you will, just unusable or, or, or maybe even unrentable office space. I think the trends are different in uh, Asia Pacific and specifically in Asia. And there are, there are many reasons for that. Firstly, in certain markets, you continue to see substantial migration to, uh, to major cities. That is true in China in particular, where population flows to the tier one cities have been going on for many years. But there are other differences between Asia and the United States uh, or Europe. Working from home is simply less plausible uh, as a long-run uh, solution in Asia than in the West. And the key reason for that is that average home sizes are much smaller. If you look at Hong Kong, which is an ad admittedly a, an extreme example, the median home size is something like 430 square feet. Hmm. Now, it is, it is simply very difficult for the majority of employees to decide that they are going to convert their kitchen uh, into, uh, in, <laughs> into an office. Yeah. There has been uh, evidence, or, or at least in, in the run-up to the COVID-19 pandemic, flexible working, co-working, as some people call it, became more popular. There is evidence from certain markets, Japan is one, of greater working from home than in the past, but it is not going to happen uh, in, uh, in Asia on the same scale as in the West. All right. So you also mentioned megacities, which, which you know, fascinates me in, in, in one sense, uh, given the sheer population sizes of, of cities like like Shanghai and, and, and others. But we've also in the West heard of, of ghost cities in places like China, where there's been massive building and, and yet no one occupying some of these residential towers in, in, in entire areas of China. Is, is it really a kind of a pick your place type environment versus what you would expect to be maybe a more uniform series of population dispersions in China where you could throw a dart at real estate and, and do well versus having to be a bit more selective at this point? Well, I think there, there are two answers really to, uh, to your question. First of all, let's look uh, at what megacity means. Shanghai is a very large Chinese tier one city with a population in, in the 25, 26 million range. But Shanghai is the leading city of the Yangtze River Delta. If you look at the Yangtze River Delta, its total population is 235 million. 
Now, what is that? That's getting on for two thirds of the population of the United States. And uh, if you look at uh, the Greater Bay Area in South China, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, uh, Hong Kong, Macau, other cities, the combined population is 86 million. Now, these megacities are huge economic focal points, and they drive demand for office-based employment. They drive demand for logistics space to serve a, a huge population. They drive demand for retail space to serve a huge population. And of course, uh, they drive demand for housing. Now, the second sort of answer to your question is to look at residential property, which you highlighted. Now, we as commercial property investors tend to focus on offices, on logistics property, on uh, on retail property. Within residential, we would focus more uh, on emerging uh, institutional classes, still small in China, but for example, uh, multifamily apartments. There has been overbuilding of residential space in China, particularly in tier three and tier four cities, to a lesser extent, tier two, to a much lesser extent, uh, tier one. Uh, and that overbuilding has led to financial problems for residential developers, but it has not really had any discernible impact uh, on uh, investment demand for commercial property. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. So let's talk a little bit about the macro uh, environment in which we find ourselves when it comes to that particular asset class. When when you look around the world right now and you see uh, what's going on with respect to a zero COVID policy in China, which has resulted almost in the full lockdown of Shanghai and, and Shenzhen and other areas, it's been estimated that in China, as much as 14% of the population is either in partial or uh, complete lockdown. When you look at the war in Ukraine, which has disrupted the global economy, does will any of this have a longer-term uh, effect uh, on real estate, or is it, as we hope here in the West as well, that ultimately these situations resolve themselves and, and life returns to some semblance of normality? You've raised several points there from a macro perspective. To start with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that has less direct impact on Asia Pacific than on Europe. The combination of the impact of the war in Ukraine and interest tightening by the US Federal Reserve could be the increased chance of stagflation, meaning uh, low growth, uh, high inflation globally, but again, that is less likely to affect Asia-Pacific, or at least Asia-Pacific uh, developed economies. You also mentioned the increasingly strict COVID-19 restrictions and the lockdowns uh, in China and also in Hong Kong SAR. Now, that is something which is having a discernible impact uh, right now. Shanghai is the most important uh, city in China. It's at the heart of the Yangtze River Delta, which is the most important region. If the lockdown in Shanghai is prolonged, that will have a tangible impact uh, on Chinese economic performance this year. Nevertheless, it's important to put that into perspective. Economic metrics in China at the start of this year were surprisingly firm. 
until recently, most forecasts were calling for real GDP growth of about 5% for 2022. And maybe the number will be lower now, but growth of 4.5% or 5% will still be well above most Western economies. Furthermore, China is likely to be one of the few big economies that could actually see interest rates fall this year. And there's been some discussion of that, that that, uh, that we're seeing uh, market rates uh, in China and the U.S. converge with the U.S. moving up and China moving down. How much would that stimulate further property development in China relative to what's already taken place? If interest rates in China do trend downwards, that is likely to alleviate financial pressures uh, on residential developers, and it may help to stimulate more property investment activity. Let's talk a little bit about about this year and then out looking forward with respect to um, Asia Pacific real estate. I mean, obviously, we're still fighting through everything. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been an unusual couple of years uh, for those of us who really lived through an environment of relative peace and prosperity as, as we grew up. As you look beyond 2022, which I suspect in, in a certain sense is going to be written off as a pandemic and a war year. One, where do you see opportunities? And two, how long before that part of the world normalizes with respect, not just to, to real estate, but, but broadly speaking, it gets back to business as usual? Well, I think to uh, to answer your first question, where, where should one look for opportunities? First of all, if we talk about particular markets, I think a market which one really should highlight is Japan. Hmm. Japanese property assets offer some offer the highest yield spreads over government bonds of any major Asia-Pacific market. The yields on uh, prime-grade offices or logistics assets would be 3 to 3.5%. Uh, versus a yield on 10-year bonds of just 0.2%. Furthermore, uh, Tokyo is by far the largest uh, uh, urban property market uh, in uh, in Asia-Pacific uh, and one of the largest in the world. So you have, uh, uh, in Tokyo alone, uh, you have a very large and very uh, liquid property market uh, both with uh, prime uh, prime grade assets in the city center, which which, which core in, uh, uh, investors following core strategies tend to target, uh, and uh, and lower grade uh, properties uh, in the outer districts, which offer all sorts of opportunities for investors following value add strategies. So Japan is definitely a, a market to which one should pay attention. From a sector perspective, industrial and logistics has been very popular over the past couple of years. I think it will remain a, a key target. It's one of the few sectors which has seen leasing demand and investment demand continue to grow through COVID-19. Uh, certain markets are seeing quite healthy rental growth in industrial and logistics. But uh, the other area to highlight, we perhaps mentioned it earlier, would be the emerging small alternative asset types, multifamily apartments. That's very much concentrated in Japan, but likely to spread to other markets, Australia, uh, China, uh, Hong Kong. Data centers 
that is a niche asset class for which demand has been surging. Uh, other areas, cold storage, medical offices, life sciences assets are growing in popularity, particularly in business parks or science parks on the edges uh, of major cities. Let me ask you one final question, because this is a topic, obviously, that that has, um, I, I think, captured the attention of, of many in the West, particularly among policymakers and business people, and that is uh, deglobalization. There's been a lot of talk, and this, some of this started before the pandemic, but H.R. Uh, McMaster, the former national security advisor in the Trump administration, said on CNBC about a month ago that for all intents and purposes, the West traded supply chain security for supply chain efficiency over the last 40 or so years. And there's a lot of talk about either diversifying supply chains or reshoring, in the case of the United States, uh, a lot of the uh, manufacturing uh, capacity that has been sent away uh, from from this part of the world. Is that a risk to the thesis when it comes to commercial real estate in Asia Pacific? I don't think it's a risk. I think it's an opportunity. In Asia, you sometimes hear, you often hear industrial companies talk about China plus one. What does that mean? China became the factory of the world, but companies have realized, this goes back quite a few years now, but companies realized that they could not have all their eggs in one basket. It made sense to have manufacturing sites in China, but perhaps it made sense also to have a site in uh, Vietnam or Bangladesh uh, or Indonesia uh, or India. So from the perspective of manufacturing industry, there has been quite substantial uh, movement uh, of activity into Southeast Asia in particular. And that is leading to the establishment of manufacturing property as opposed to uh, logistics warehouses as a new subtype of industrial property. But that shift, interestingly, is not just going to the emerging markets. You are also seeing some repatriation of advanced manufacturing, high-end manufacturing from China to markets like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. So you are starting to see manufacturing property emerge or re-emerge as an asset type in those markets. And you are also starting to see increased demand for office space in cities close to major manufacturing areas. All right, Andrew, a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for being with us today. Truly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Andrew Haskins, Head of Strategy and Investor Advisory of Real Estate for Asia Pacific for Schroeders, joining us today on the U.S. Lens. I'm Ron Insana. Thanks for checking in with us. We will talk to you again soon. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcasts at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers.